Hey listeners, we are Frontline Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. You are about to listen to a sermon from a Sunday gathering at our downtown OKC location. We pray that it moves you towards the power and presence of Christ and calls you to love God, love people, and push back darkness. Please visit FrontlineChurch.com for more information. The scripture for today's sermon comes from Proverbs 31, 10 through 31. The word of God speaks to us. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it with the fruit of her hands. She plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. This is God's word to us. Amen. Thanks, Leah. Good morning, guys. How you doing? It's, uh, it's good to be with you guys today. If we haven't met yet, my name is Josh Curry. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, before we dive into this and talk about Proverbs 31, uh, I just want to commend a couple of things to you guys for you to pray. Um, this is a really busy season in the life of our church in terms of international mission and international partnership. Uh, we believe in planting and strengthening churches locally and globally. And uh, for the next few weeks, we're going to have teams going all over the world. And I would love for you guys to just make a note in your phone, mark that down. Maybe at 12 o'clock every day, you guys could just take a couple of minutes to pray for the teams and pray for the churches that they're serving. Um, my buddy Kevin Colley and Jeff Nine, they left today to go to India to be with Cornerstone Mumbai. So pray for those guys. That's a fruitful team. And then Thursday of next week, Nancy and I are going to head to Liverpool to spend a week with our family of churches that we run with over there. That's going to be a really rich but intense busy week. And then uh, in the next week, uh, both Dylan Bird and Corey Fahrenkamp are going to get on a plane and go to Kenya to do relief and development work and also hopefully start thinking about planting a church among refugees there. So if you guys would just pray for those teams and pray for the work of God globally and locally, uh, it would be a huge blessing. Now, I'm going to pray for you, you pray for me, and we'll dive in. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that you're at work all over the world. We thank you that you're at work in obvious, big, invisible ways. And we thank you that you're at work in hidden and subtle ways. 
We thank you that you didn't go to sleep last night, that you sustained the entire universe. We thank you that you're good and you're faithful. And I pray today, Lord, that you would give good gifts to your sons and daughters in this room. God, I pray as we wrap up feminine virtue, that this would be a moment where my sisters would be bolstered, encouraged, strengthened, energized by the grace of God in Jesus, both married and single, young and old. God, would you give them gifts today to finish the race in faith? Pray for all my brothers today, Lord, that you would help us to grow in appreciation for our sisters. Help us to grow in faithfulness. Help us to grow in being supportive, godly men that honor the women around us and treat them with dignity and respect. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for the ways in which you're demonstrating your glory, your goodness, and your beauty through the women of our church. So meet us today and feed us. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said... Amen. So if you're new today, this has been a really rich three weeks in the life of our church, starting with the women's conference a few weeks ago. And then for the last two Sundays, we've been talking about ways in which God manifests his glory and his beauty through womanhood. The first week on Sunday mornings, we got to talk about woman as life giver and all the ways that include having babies, but go way beyond that to women in every stage of life that God uses women to cultivate and foster life, cultivate and foster life. Last week, my buddy Kevin Colley preached an amazing sermon on woman as sister. We looked at Mary and Elizabeth and the ways in which God has called women away from competition to beautiful kingdom collaboration. Today, as we close, we're going to talk about woman as wife, woman as wife. And uh, this is not going to be overly narrow. God has gifts to give both single women and married women, whatever your stage of life. And before we dive into this, I'll say it's not lost on me that whenever Proverbs 31 is read, everybody in the room gets a little cagey. I'm aware of that. And the reason people get cagey when we read Proverbs 31 is that the Bible is supposed to be all about Jesus. Can I get an amen? And when Jesus is sidelined or forgotten as we interpret scripture, we do really dumb and unhelpful things with the Bible. And Proverbs 31 has suffered from bad exegesis that forgets the grace of God in Christ. And what's happened again and again is that Proverbs 31 has been reduced to this moralistic stick that gets used to shame and beat women. The idea of moralism is do more, try harder, get your crap together, and then God will be pleased with you. And what happens so often when Proverbs chapter 31 is preached is we essentially use law to browbeat women into trying to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And the problem with that is that moralism can't transform you. It can't save you. It can't offer hope to you. Moralism is not the good news of the grace of God in Jesus. One of my favorite pastors is an older guy who's finishing well named Ray Ortland Jr. And he nails it in his little book about Proverbs. He says this, God does not intend to crush us with layer upon layer of demand. He intends to help us. And the book of Proverbs is practical help from God for weak people, just like us who are stumbling through daily life. It's his counsel for the perplexed, his strength for the defeated, his warnings to the proud, his mercy for the broken. The book of Proverbs is the gospel. 
It's good news for the inept through the wisdom of another. It's about grace for sinners. It's about hope for failures. It's about wisdom for idiots. This book is Jesus himself coming to us as our counselor, as our sage, as our life coach. The book of Proverbs is pointing to Jesus, the wisdom of God made manifest in the flesh. Now, in addition, when we marry moralism with the current modern view and takes on women, things get even darker. The message of modern culture to women is that you should have it all. You should have it all right now. You should have it all in perfect balance, and you should look like the current standard of beauty while you're doing it. So we twist the Proverbs 31 woman into a girl boss who's buying vineyards, rising early while also keeping the lamp burning all night, running a homeless ministry, a textile business, a women's ministry, posting recipes to Instagram, homeschooling her kids, keeping it hot in the bedroom, all while going to the gym and getting swole. Right? And it's no wonder that when I sat on the front row and felt the gasp of the room with Leah read Proverbs 31, that if that's the way that you see this part of the Bible, it's like, thanks, but no thanks. That's a hard pass. See, friends, listen, Proverbs 31 is the A to Z of redeemed womanhood. It's literally in the Hebrew, an, ac an acrostic poem that goes from A to Z, highlighting the redemptive glory of God in a woman's life throughout the course of a lifetime. No woman at any one stage of her life is gonna do all these things in perfect balance. This is about a lifetime of following Jesus and giving your life away. Now, I'll just prove that by two quick things. Um, nobody in the room that has a three-year-old has ever heard the three-year-old rising up to call mom blessed, right? We, we had a very articulate three-year-old. She could tell us what she thought. She was thankfully exceedingly cute, but not one time did she get up in the morning to heap praises on her mom for mom's faithfulness. Three-year-olds don't do that. Three-year-olds are terrible, selfish, cute people. In addition, newlyweds, newlyweds that get married in their 20s don't have a husband that's serving as an elder in the gates of the city governing the land. This is a picture, this is a picture of God's faithfulness over time in different stages of life. So ladies, today, what I want you to get is that Proverbs chapter 31 is an invitation from God. And more than just an invitation, Proverbs chapter 31 is permission from God to actually have more faith and more vision for a lifetime of being shaped by the love of God in Christ. So that with his help, you can use all of the gifts that he's given you, all of your talents, all of your creativity, all of your intellect, all of your passion, all of your burdens to be poured out as you bless and build and worship, fostering an outpost of God's kingdom in whatever domain God's given you, married or single, throughout the course of your lifetime. It's a beautiful thing. So today what we're going to do is look at three things. We're going to look at the Proverbs 31 woman through three lenses. We're going to look at her mission. We're going to look at her fruit. And then we're going to look at her source. Where does all this beauty and goodness come from? Let's start with her mission. Now, this is really interesting. It's something that I didn't know until about three years ago. Proverbs 31 is actually a hero poem 
that's written like Old Testament celebrations of martial exploits in battle. In both the content of Proverbs 31 and the structure of Proverbs 31, it mirrors ways in which people wrote to celebrate heroes who led the armies of God into victory, guys like David and Saul and Jonathan. Let me show you just a couple of things that are really interesting that get lost in some of our translations. Look at 31 verse 10. It says, an excellent wife who can find. Circle the word excellent and off to the side, write valiant. The word translated in most of our Bibles as excellent is closer to the word valiant, which connotes courage and strength and bravery in the service of others. And in verse 11, when it says the heart of her husband trusts in her, he will have no lack of gain. That word gain is more literally spoils. So here's a valiant woman who's actually raiding the kingdom of darkness and bringing the spoils of war back for the blessing and the benefit of her domain. And look at Proverbs 31, verse 15. This one's really weird. It says, she rises while it's at night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. That doesn't seem like a big deal until you realize that a lot of interpreters are scared to interpret food as it's more accurately interpreted, which is prey. This is a picture of a woman who's literally bringing prey back for the blessing and benefit of her family. One Hebrew scholar, Al Walters, puts it like this. The valorous wife is a heroic figure used by God to do good for his people. Just as the ancient judges and kings did good, by, did good for God's people by their martial exploits. Now I want you to pause for just a second and give me permission to take us somewhere really weird for just a couple of minutes. Um, if you've read the Old Testament, there's two books that are really similar, but also really different. If you read First and Second Kings, it kind of reads sort of like Saving Private Ryan. It's got parts of it that are hard to watch. It's got a lot of highs and lows and sin and destruction. It's an R, but it's like a soft R, all right? You might let your 13-year-old watch it. But if you turn to the book of Judges, it's less like Saving Private Ryan, and it's more like Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards. It's incredibly uncomfortable to sit with the book of Judges. And in the book of Judges, chapter four, there's this really weird thing that happens that I think God included in scripture to actually shape a different vision for what it means to be a wife and what wives do for the blessing and benefit of others. See, here's what's happening. The Canaanites, led by their king and a general named Sisera, for 20 years are using their superior military might to oppress the children of Israel. Now, it's because of Israel's sin, but God hears their cries for mercy and deliverance after 20 years, and he does something really interesting to rescue them. Let me just read it to you quickly. This is Proverbs 4, verse 17. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside into her tent and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink because I'm thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and she gave him a drink and she covered him. 
And he said to her, stand by the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and she took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him. She went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground and he was lying dead. So he died. (laughs) And in case you think that this is like bad news for the people of God, (laughs) Judges chapter four, verse 23 says that on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Caden, before the people of Israel. Now, ladies, I'm not in any way suggesting that like JL should be your life verse. I, I hope we don't get like JL tattoos in our church. But here's what I am suggesting. What God does through JL is a powerful prophetic picture of a wife who's using feminine strength and culturally feminine tools to push back darkness and to follow God on mission. Think about what happens here. She uses hospitality. She welcomes this guy in. She covers him up. She provides a place of rest. He says he's thirsty for water. She goes above water and offers a symbol of nurturing and motherhood. She gives him a skin of milk to drink. And then she takes a spike and a tent peg. And this is really interesting because for her particular culture, the gender division of labor for nomadic people had the guys usually tending flocks out in the wild while the ladies were responsible to tear down tents. That hammer and that spike would have been something that she used as a wife and mom literally thousands and thousands of times. And then you have this crazy tension between her coming to him with softness, but through a course of a lifetime, she's developed strength and tenacity where she's able in softness to approach, but in strength to drive the nail through the guy's head into the ground. This story is weird. It's exceptional. It's not appropriate for VBS with elementary kids. I'm aware of all that. But it also reminds us that we've actually developed a really anemic vision for what it means to be a wife and what it means to be a husband. And the Bible says, where there is no vision, the people cast off restraint. And there's a thing that's happening all around us, both in the church and outside of the church, where we lack vision for what it means to be in the covenant of marriage, and therefore we throw off restraint when things get hard. Most of us have been shaped by a vision of marriage that's reduced to two things. It's about what Mary Harrington calls big, big romance. It's this weird fantasy idea that the one exists, your soulmate, and if you find the one, they're going to unlock all of the keys to happiness in your life. It's the Jerry Maguire myth. You complete me. And big romance sells people through all kinds of different ways on this idea that marriage exists for the end of happiness alone. Now, don't get me wrong. Like God's the one that invented romance. Read the Song of Solomon. It's a celebration of love between a husband and a wife and mutual delight in one another. But romance can't be the foundation of your marriage. That's a weak vision because if you've been married any longer than your honeymoon, and if your honeymoon was three days or longer, you've realized that if you're stacking all your hopes on completion, salvation, and happiness on your spouse, you're gonna be left empty. In addition, we kind of combine with big romance the idea of economic partnership. I don't think it's a good thing that Americans in our vernacular have kind of gone away from spouse to the idea of partner. 
It's a consumeristic way of looking at marriage. It's that marriage is an economic partnership between two people. We're sort of going to stack our ladders on each other, and that's the point of marriage. It's romance and happiness and a little bit more financial security. And again, like God's not opposed to financial security. God's for husbands and wives collaborating together so that hopefully by his grace, you could even leave a blessing and an inheritance to your kids and grandkids. That's all great. But if that's what we think the mission of marriage is, you're never going to understand Proverbs 31 that's a hero poem celebrating a woman pushing back darkness through the vocation of being a wife. See, in the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, God has this really big mission to fill the earth with his glory, to spread his justice and his beauty and his goodness. And to accomplish that mission of filling the earth with his righteousness and glory, he doesn't build a 501c3, he doesn't launch a corporation, he creates a man and he creates a woman. And the Bible tells us that before the creation of Eve, Adam's trying to carry out the mission of cultivating and keeping the garden. He's naming the animals. And God says repeatedly, it's not good for him to be alone. So then God creates Eve and he gives Eve this really interesting assignment. He says that I will make a helper suitable for him. And we talked in the book of Genesis a couple of months ago about how that word helper sounds really weird and boring. It sounds sort of like a dumbing down of what a wife is, but the original Hebrew is ezer, which actually is used to describe God's life-saving, rescuing work of offering strength for the blessing of others over 20 times in the Old Testament. The idea is that she's gonna be this Ezer, this help who corresponds to him in ways that are equal but different, and therefore together they're going to collaborate to fill the earth with the mission of God. And after the fall, when sin enters in and death and brokenness, Proverbs 31 is this reminder that God has the power to redeem and rescue marriage in such a way that it can be about the mission of God, not just simply building a kingdom of self. And Proverbs 31 is pointing beyond itself to the ultimate meaning of marriage, which is Jesus and his church. So listen, Proverbs 31 is first and foremost trying to offer ladies in our church a bigger vision for what it means to be a wife. It's not just about sort of passing your time or simply fulfilling culturally mandated roles. Being a wife is about participating in the mission of God and helping in the domain that God's given you to carve out an outpost of God's kingdom. It's a way in which God wants darkness to be pushed back. Now, this leads us to the second thing. We got to talk about her fruitfulness because the particular activities of the Proverbs 31 woman could not be more foreign to you and me. We have textiles and vineyards and maidservants and linen and purple and city gates and tons of stuff in Proverbs 31 that looks absolutely nothing like post-industrial OKC. The only way you could sort of approximate this life is if you're independently wealthy and you buy a commune, right? That's not most of the lives that we're living in the room. So what we have to do is let's get bogged down in the particular activities of this wife and we have to zoom out to ask another question. What's the fruit that this woman is bearing through her relationships and through her labors? 
And I want to give you a few things to think about that are really beautiful. The fruit of this woman, first and foremost, is that she's actually carrying and bringing life to beauty all around her. This includes her economic work, her relational work, and her spiritual work. She's cultivating the kind of soul-awakening beauty that points people to the beauty of God. Proverbs chapter 31, verse 30 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. She's doing this work to beautify relationships and beautify domains, beautify spaces that includes linen and purple and scarlet and all kinds of things around her that she enriches with beauty. But at the end of the day, all of that beauty is the overflow of an inner beauty where a person has encountered the beauty of God. And in our porn-drenched plastic culture, like we just have an anemic understanding of beauty. We don't understand how important beauty is, what God's trying to do through beauty, that he created the world not gray and drab, but he created the world to have his fingerprints all around it so that when you see a sunset, when you look at the Pacific Ocean, when you walk through a forest, when you hear a beautiful piece of music, all of that is designed by God to not terminate on the beautiful thing so that we worship creation instead of creator, but all of the beautiful things in this world exist because God, the fountainhead of beauty, created them to point to him so that we could see a glimpse of him and be satisfied in his beauty. This is not just about aesthetics. This is about theology. When When the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good, he's proclaiming the beauty of God, that God should be experienced and enjoyed as the ultimate beauty. One of my favorite books that I've read in the last 10 years is a great novel by Donna Tartt called The Goldfinch. And it's kind of about beauty and art as sort of a liturgical practice to shape and form. And towards the end of the book, there's this section of a few lines that I can't forget. She writes this, beauty alters the grain of reality. And I keep thinking too of the more conventional wisdom, namely that the pursuit of pure beauty is a trap a fast track to bitterness and sorrow, that beauty has to be wedded to something more meaningful. See, I love that because what this woman is actually doing throughout the course of her lifetime as she's creating relationships marked by beauty and spaces marked by beauty and economic exploits marked by beauty is she's actually inviting the people of God to encounter that beauty and worship God who is the source of beauty, the fulfillment of beauty. When, when I was 20 years old and Nancy and I got married, um, I, I think I had a, a bit of a grid for God's holiness, for God's mission. I did not understand at all the beauty of God. And one of the gifts that God gave me in giving me my wife is that she moved into this apartment that was sort of a physical reflection of the ways in which I was impoverished as a man. My, my apartment when I was 20 years old, I moved out the day I turned 18. My apartment when I was 20 was this tiny little apartment and literally the only things in my apartment were a weight bench at an Olympic sized weight bench where the dining room table was supposed to be. I had a mattress on the floor where I slept because you know only soft people use bed, bed springs. And my entire life was just about working and training. That was my whole life. 
And then this woman moved in and, and she didn't just beautify a space. This is not about ultimately like, oh, the importance of interior design. But as she beautified the space, she actually brought beauty into my life, radiance into my life that started giving me a glimpse more and more of God. Beauty is a reflection of God. And the Proverbs 31 woman is internally beautiful. It's a kind of beauty that doesn't wane as gravity sets in. It's a kind of beauty that can't be shaken by wrinkles. It's a kind of beauty that goes beyond cultural stereotypes. There's an inner beauty that turns into an outer beauty and filling the world with beauty that looks like God. And our sisters in ways that men can't scratch the surface of are called to unveil the beauty of God in a thousand different ways in our community. Secondly, in addition, her fruit is depth. It's not just beauty, but it's depth. Look at verse 26. It says, she opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. This is a woman that knows God's word and she's also taken God's presence so deeply inside of her that she knows God's heart and his character. This is not just disembodied wisdom. If you read Greek poetry that celebrates wisdom, so often it's disembodied, it's ethereal, it's abstract. This is a woman who knows the more she gets to know the character and nature of God, the more that demands and creates kindness that adorns that wisdom. There's something so powerful about sisters in our church that help invite those around him into greater depth, like Titus 2, that says to older women, teach what is good. Let the teaching of wisdom and kindness be on your lips. A, a woman who knows who she is, a woman who's not striving, a woman who's at rest in her relationship with God is invited throughout the entirety of scripture to do the kind of practical embodied teaching and modeling of wisdom that adorns wisdom with kindness and with grace that helps us experience and see more of Jesus. Thirdly, the third kind of fruit is communion. Communion means relationship or fellowship. The New Testament word for communion is koinonia. It's this beautiful thing that reflects the love of the triune God that's accomplished through the finished work of Jesus. But through her life of blessing and fostering deep relationships, we get to see her also receiving blessing in relationships of trust. Look at verse 28. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. This is a woman, this is a woman who's built relationships of trust in such a deep way that over the course of a lifetime, she's carved out space, both physical and relational, for people to trust each other to such a degree that they could say the things that most of us think and don't utter. This is a deeper kind of sharing of life. And one of the things that I love so deeply about our community group is that community groups have all kinds of stages of life. We have older people and younger people. We have men, we have women. And one of the things that makes our community group so beautiful is the kind of work that the ladies do in our community. And men are called to partner in this as well. But there's unique power when ladies in the group actually fight to cultivate relationships of trust where more and more people can breathe, can risk, can pray out loud, 
There's something that happens when you're in the presence of a smart, powerful, godly woman who actually is at peace that invites out of you more risk and more relationship than you knew you had to offer. In addition to these things, the fruit of her life is rest. It's rest. Let me show you three verses really fast. Verse 18, she perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. Now, that's not saying that she gets up early and stays up all night. That's not a very healthy or sustainable life. Her lamp not going out at night is more about a symbol of life filling her home. Her home is a place of life. It's a place of vibrancy. Verse 21 says she's not afraid of snow for her household, for all of her household are clothed in scarlet. And verse 25 says that strength and dignity are her clothing. She laughs at the time to come. Here's what we see here. The lamp and the warm clothing and the laughter in the face of the future are all pregnant with peace, stability, and warmth. This is a woman who's receiving the grace of God and as she receives the grace of God, she's actually working to push back darkness by bringing peace and rest to the world around her. When you read Genesis chapter two, before the creation of Eve, there's something laborious and incomplete about Adam's days. He's trying to garden, he's trying to keep, he's naming animals. Sin hasn't yet entered in, but God says it's not good for you to be alone. And God takes a rib from his side. He fashions the rib into a woman. He brings the woman to the man. The man breaks out into the first bit of poetry. And you get this sense that the first time that Adam sees Eve, he actually experiences a deeper fullness of what it means to be home that points to something way bigger than just marriage. It points to the kind of communion that we were created for in God through the work of Jesus to bring us into rest. And then the last kind of fruit is mercy. Mercy. Look at verse 20. It says that she opens her hands to the poor. She reaches out her hands to the needy. I love this. This is, this is such a powerful picture that she's received the kindness of God. She's walking with God in communion. And the overflow of that is not just the blessings of beauty and rest and communion with those that are in her immediate domain, but the overflow actually spills over the walls of her home into those that are needy and broken on the outside. Now, as we close, how is this possible, let alone sustainable? Like, I would hope that even if you don't perhaps agree with all the things I've said, that when you think of those different areas of fruit, my hope is that everybody in the room is like, yeah, that would be good if we had more of those things in the world. More beauty, more communion, more rest, more mercy. What's this woman's source? Where does this come from? And I wanna show you two verses that get us to the core of her power and her motivation that lead us right to the cross of Jesus. Look at verse 17. It says, she dresses herself with strength and she makes her arms strong. Now, it's easy to read that and sort of have a Western view of the kind of strength as her working herself up to just try harder. Almost like this is a feminine version of David Goggins. Just stay hard. Put out, get after it. 
But actually when it says that she clothes herself with strength, that's language that we find all over the Old Testament. We find it in the Psalms. We find it in David, who after getting beat by their enemies, goes off by himself. And the Bible says he strengthened himself in the Lord. What this is telling us is what we started with week one, Friday night, when Leslie Poe got up and talked about union with Jesus. The strength that she's closing herself in is not just the power of positive thinking. It's not just motivation. It's actually receptivity to the grace of God, being clothed in the power of God so that even when she runs dry, she's able to receive help in her weakness that glorifies God. This is a woman, this is a woman who is communing with God, who's communing with God, whose source is God, whose life is God. And verse 30 even helps us flesh this out more. It says, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. It's amazing that the book of Proverbs starts with wisdom personified as a woman calling out to the foolish to gain wisdom by fearing God. That's where Proverbs begins. The beginning of wisdom is to fear God. And lady wisdom is calling out to fools, fear God. That's the beginning of wisdom. And then we get to the last chapter of Proverbs and wisdom is now embodied in a real woman who fears God as the beginning of wisdom. This is to love and treasure the will of God. This is to want to be in the presence of God. This is wanting God more than you want anything else. This is God for her being more important than being a wife, more important than being a mom, more important than all of the things that she's doing with her hands. To fear God is to want to be with God and like God and know God more than anything. And all of that is fulfilled 2,000 years ago when Jesus shows up in the flesh as the wisdom of God incarnate to actually bear in himself all the ways that we've broken God's law, all the ways we're foolish and selfish and prideful, all the ways in which we deserve wrath and condemnation. Jesus takes all of that on the cross and upon rising from the dead, he offers to us his clothing of righteousness, alien righteousness in which all the law is kept. When Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, the Spirit of God is sent from on high so that anyone that trusts in Jesus would be empowered from the inside out to actually be wrapped up in the fullness of Jesus. It's amazing to me how many times in the Bible we're introduced to women at wells. Again and again, Old Testament, New Testament, there's women in wells all over the Bible. It's this really powerful picture of women knowing where the source of life is, going to the source of life, and as they partake of the source of life, offering that life to others. The Proverbs 31 woman is not like some shallow, self-help, try-harder story about you doing it on your own. The Proverbs 31 woman is just a picture of what it looks like to be a woman at the capital W well, who's so receiving the life and the presence and the love of God that she's able to bring beauty and peace and relationality to the world around her. So today as we close, before we come to the Lord's Supper, let me just say a couple of things to my single sisters in the room. You don't have to be married to be a woman at the well. You don't have to be married, you don't have to be married 
to bring beauty to the community that God's put you in. You don't have to be married to have your life shaped around mercy. You don't have to be married to clothe yourself with the strength of Jesus to build communion with those around you. And, and being married, being married is not the finish line of life with God because marriage itself points us to communion with the triune God to the finished work of Jesus and marriage will be done away with when the perfect comes and we see Jesus face to face. So marriage is good, it's a gift. It's not bad to wanna get married. It's bad to make marriage the idol. If you're a single lady in the church, Proverbs 31 invites you as a handmaiden of the Lord and as a part of the bride of Christ to cultivate this kind of God-fearing excellence that finds its source in it. To single men in the church, one of the biggest takeaways from Proverbs 31 should be that by God's grace, God is inviting you to put away childish things and grow up. I don't say that to be a coach that pokes you in the chest and dogs you, but I'm saying like, Proverbs 31 is describing next to salvation, the greatest gift that God gave this man, which is the gift of a wife. She's powerful. She's glorious. She reflects his goodness. And for single men in the church, it's so important that the ladies in our church who are growing in their pursuit of God and holiness, who want to get married, are in a community of guys that are taking the things of God seriously and getting their junk together. By God's grace, with help, every time I talk about marriage, I have so many godly single women in our church that are sad and frustrated. So single brothers, the invitation of Proverbs 31 to you is like, hey, by God's grace, I want to grow up to be the kind of worthy man that could protect and lead and honor this kind of woman. That doesn't start when you get married. That starts when you're a teenager building that kind of character. To married women in the church, you're a blessing and you're a gift. And, and God chose you to be a blessing and a gift to your husband and that means you don't need to sit under Proverbs 31 as law. You need to receive Proverbs 31 as invitation and gift to grow in grace and to be who you're called to be. Be who you already are in Jesus. Grow up into that. And to married men in the church, don't you dare use Proverbs 31 as a way to grade and berate your wife. Don't do that. Proverbs 31 invites you to praise your wife, to honor what is good and what is marked with grace. And Ephesians chapter five calls married men to not try to change their wives in our own ability or shove your wife into doing what you think you should do, but to love your wife like Jesus loves the church by being willing to die for her. If you're frustrated because your wife to you doesn't look like the Proverbs 31 woman, you better get to loving and praying and repenting and going first and following Jesus. Let's pray. God, we just thank you. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you love to help us. Thank you that you haven't left us on our own. You haven't left us orphans. Thank you that the spirit of God is here. Thank you that you offer repentance and faith. Thank you that you offer transformation. Thank you that we're not left down here trying to figure out how to be human beings on our own. We thank you for the riches of Jesus's 
perfect and pure righteousness that's credited to us by grace. And we pray that that grace would stir us up to love and good deeds, that we would grow. As we come to this meal, would you feed us, nourish us, and lead us out of here on mission between Sundays? In Jesus' name, amen.